All right, we want to welcome you all here again this morning as we continue in this series of called The Bible, Racism, and Social Justice. And today we consider this class uh, as we move forward. Now, during our last time together, we began asking the question, what is justice? And we did this by turning to the Bible and learning more about God and considering his attributes of holiness and righteousness and justice. It's because of God's holiness that he is unique and separate from his creation as our perfect, good, and morally pure creator. It's also because of God's righteousness that his holiness is revealed to his creation through God's law, which reflects his character of perfect purity. And it's because of God's justice, then, that his righteousness is administered in his creation and requires righteousness from his creation or in his creation. So God's justice gives everyone their due. Either he rewards them for their obedience to his law or he penalizes them for their disobedience to his law. And he shows no partiality or favoritism, but God treats us fairly and equally. So, as kind of a brief overview of what we covered last week, you have these aspects or these attributes of God, which help us to come to an understanding of justice. Uh, but if you weren't able to join us, I'd encourage you to go back and, of course, watch the first session online. But as John Calvin reminded us, we can't really separate what the Bible reveals about God and about mankind since our knowledge of the two are connected together by many ties. And so now I want us to consider what is meant to be created in the image of God so that we can come to answer the question, what is justice? So let's consider this whole question of created in God's image by focusing on our relationship with God. And to do so, we return to when God created man. So let's turn to Genesis 1. Verses 26 to 28. Because after God created the world and everything in it, on the sixth day, God created man. And that's what we come to here in these verses. Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here we have a central truth revealed about us in Scripture that we are created in God's image. Now, through the centuries, theologians have fleshed out what this means in different ways. What does it mean to be created in God's image? And there's really developed three main views of mankind as God's image bearers. First, there's the structural view. Uh, second, there's the functional view view. And third, there are is the relational view. And while we're not here to study these views in depth, I at least want to mention uh, what they are here to you. So 
So first, some hold that the image of God is structural. In other words, God has endowed us with unique capacities and characteristics unlike the rest of creation. Uh, and the, this unique capacity or capability is usually recognized as our rationality, our ability to reason or our wills and, and our ability to make decisions. Uh, this view then holds that we are created differently from the rest of creation, and these differences are why we are created in God's image. But second, others maintain that the image of God is functional. And with this understanding, we bear God's image as we carry out his will for him or for us. So God's image is the purpose for which we are created, not our distinctive identity as his creatures. His image then is not something that's present in us, according to this view, but something we carry out or do in God's creation. And then third, some believe that the image of God is relational, that we are created in the image of God because of our relationship with him and our relationship with fellow humans. And it's our relational nature that is what constitutes living as image bearers of God. Now, when we compare these views with Scripture, we see all three of them as aspects of image bearing. If you consider Genesis 1 again, there is a structural difference between God, uh, between God and mankind, but between mankind and the rest of his creation, and it distinguishes us. Uh, what man is is different from what the rest of creation is, but it's also closely tied to what man does, which is functional. After God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, what does he immediately say next? Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So we should not ignore this link. Additionally, we should also include the relational perspective, because God creates us in relationship with him and with one another. And that's what we see in verse 27, when God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. You have this relationship then these relationships that take place. Therefore, the image of God involves all three of these aspects, the structural, the functional, and the relational. But I appreciate how Anthony Hokema summarizes this doctrinal truth in his book, Created in God's Image, and it's well worth reading if you have the opportunity. But listen to Hokema's explanation. The concept of man as the image or likeness of God tells us that man as he was created was to mirror God and to represent God. Hokema goes on, first, he was to mirror God. As a mirror reflects, so man should reflect God. When one looks at a human being, one ought to see in him or her a certain reflection of God. Another way of putting this is to say that man is to become vis or is man that in man, excuse me, in man God is to become visible on earth. If you wish to see what I am like, God is saying, look at my most distinguished creature, man. This means that when man is what he ought to be, others should be able to look at him and see something of God in him, something of God's love, God's kindness, and God's goodness. And Hokema continues, second, man also represents God. Man was created in such a way that he was able to do this. 
If it is true that when one looks at man, he should see something of God in him, it follows that man represents God on earth. And as God's representatives, we must not do what we like, but what God desires. It's through us that God works out his purposes on this earth. And in us, people should be able to encounter God, to hear his word, and to experience his love. Man is God's representative. Well, there's a lot there to consider, but as we are looking at this whole idea of justice and our God is just, what we find is that we are created to imitate and uphold God's justice and other image bearers are owed justice because they are too created in the image of God. Do you kind of see how this is connected? If God is just, then his image bearers must be just, and we must be just towards other image bearers, maybe a simpler way of saying it. Uh, we, we read this, by the way, at the beginning of Psalm 106, verses 1 to 3. L listen to these words. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can declare all his praise? Blessed are those who keep justice, and he who does righteousness at all times. We are God's image bearers who he has created to keep justice and do righteousness at all times. But the theme of justice is also explored in the book of Proverbs. So why don't we turn together here to the book of Proverbs and, and, and spend a few minutes here because it's really a theme throughout the book of Proverbs. And as Proverbs opens, uh, you have the purpose of why this book was written announced. And so let's look at the first three verses there of, of the first chapter, uh, Proverbs chapter 1. Verses 1 to 3. Here we read the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. So why is Proverbs given? So we will know wisdom and instruction, perceive the words of understanding, receive the instruction of wisdom, and justice, and judgment, and equity. Is it any surprise then this comes up over and over again in the book of Proverbs? Now let's go to the next chapter, chapter 2. Look at verses 6 to 9. For the Lord gives wisdom... From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the people. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. Verse 8. He guards the paths of justice and preserves the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity and every good path. You start to see how important these ideas are for us to understand and to live out. Well, there's, of course, too much in Proverbs for us to consider this morning, but we're going to quickly go through and look at several verses to read and meditate on together. Let's go to chapter 3 and read verse 33 together. 
The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the just. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 1. We see this justice applied. Dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Or chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 8. Better is a little with righteousness than vast revenues without justice. Or just a few verses later in verse 11. Honest weights and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. Go to Proverbs chapter 20, verse 10. Diverse weights and diverse measures, they are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Or later in the chapter, verse 23. Diverse weights are an abomination to the Lord and dishonest scales are not good. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 3. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Or go down to verse 7. The violence of the wicked will destroy them because they refuse to do justice. Or go down to verse 15. It is a joy for the just to do justice, but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. Do you see the importance of justice and judging with equity through the book of Proverbs? See, we are created as God's people in his image to be just, to be a just people. And how are we to live justly in our relationships with others? By treating them fairly and equally, since this is how our just God treats us. So we are not to treat people unfairly with unequal scales, preferring or favoring some over others, but we are to treat all alike, equally recognizing their inherent worth as fellow image bearers of God. So now we have finally come to the point where we can form a biblical understanding of justice. What is justice? Again, we asked this last week. How would you answer that question? What is justice? Well, here's my definition. Justice is our fair and impartial treatment of others according to God's law. Justice is our fair and impartial treatment of others according to God's law. See, because God is just by treating us fair and impartial according to his law, we then are just when we treat others fair and impartial according to his law. But this isn't the world that we live in, is it? There's injustice in this world. There is favoritism, unfairness, and partiality among us. And so our study continues today after considering the revelation of God's justice. And we want to continue by considering the ruin of sin and injustice. And here we look at the beginning of broken relationships that enter this world. 
as we have seen God created us in His image as relatable people, and mankind is in a relationship with God, and we are in a relationship with one another. But let's look again at Genesis chapter 3, when we read of our rebellion against God in sin. Of course, we know God's adversary, Satan, comes as a serpent into the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were dwelling in the presence of God, and he tempts them to eat from the tree that God had commanded them not to eat from. And we all know what happened next. Eve decides to take of the forbidden fruit and eats, and then she gives it to her husband and he eats it too. So they disobey God's law by determining that they were going to live as they desired rather than how God created them to live. Which is why God then comes into the garden in judgment against them, cursing the serpent, condemning the woman and the man, and corrupting this world. And because Adam represented us in the garden, we are guilty for this sin, and we also inherit his sin and follow in Adam's footsteps. First, let's consider what happened to our relationship with God. Our relationship with God. Uh, back in Genesis 2, verse 17, when God commanded Adam not to eat from the tree, he warned him, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. But now let's read Genesis 3, verses 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So God's just punishment of death came upon humanity here, and in being drove out of the garden, he was sent away from the presence of God. This separation is spiritual death, where we are alienated from God and live under his wrath for our sin. We have then forfeited the eternal life that God provided to us through another tree, the tree of life, and have come under the curse of death. And our spiritual separation from God then brings our physical death, where we return to the dust of the ground, as we read there in verses 17 and 19. Uh, we read then to Adam, God said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field and the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. What a sad state we now live in. Our relationship with God is no longer one of communion and presence, but it's one of alien, of, of alienation and wrath. But not only do we learn of this uh, in our relationship with God, we see this in our relationship with mankind. 
Because not only do we live in separation from God, but we also live selfishly with one another. And we read of this when God speaks these words of judgment to the woman back in verse 16. Genesis 3.16, to the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So childbearing and parenting become filled with pain. And while it is good for a wife to desire her husband, here we see a sinful desire of his authority, where the woman will seek to reverse man's rule and dominate him. And in sin, she will not desire to submit to a husband who will lovingly lead her. Then also look at how her husband will treat her. While the woman desires to be in charge and dominate her husband, he will be the one dominating her, which means that husbands will abuse their authority in ruling over their wives. And these marriage hardships move out through our marriage and family life into all of our relationships in society. It's why after Adam and Eve are driven out of the Garden of Eden and they begin having children in chapter 4, we see them bearing two sons, Cain and Abel. And many of us know the story. Once Cain became angry with God, he murders his brother in jealousy. And this wicked behavior continues to unfold generation after generation. So what do we see? That relational hostility enters the world through our sin as we take advantage of others and even kill them to further ourselves in this world. We are a people who love ourselves more than God and others. So now we have these broken relationships that we live with. But then we also, as history unfolds, come to see the division of ethnic groups. As mankind continues to grow in this world, biblical history reveals diverse ethnic groups developing among humanity. Now, what is an ethnic group? Well, I understand an ethnic group to be a people who share ancestry, history, culture, and language. That's really a good summation to me of this whole idea of an ethnic group. There's this shared identity through ancestry, history, culture, and language. And in the Bible, these different ethnic groups are usually referred to as nations. As nations. So the Apostle Paul speaks of these nations as he speaks to the Greek philosophers in a key passage of Scripture, uh, Acts chapter 17, verses 26 to 27, Paul says, And he, that is God, and God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. What do we learn from these words from Paul in Acts 17? First, every nation of men are made from one blood. In other words, we all come from the same parents, Adam and Eve, and we are all created equally in the image of God. There's no nation better than another. Second, 
God has made us into nations to dwell on all the face of the earth. As we've seen, he created us in his image with a purpose to have dominion over the whole earth as we mirror and represent him. Well, third, we learn that God is sovereign over all the peoples of the world, having predetermined when and where we will live. Because, of course, God is Lord of all mankind. Fourth, we see that God created us to know him and to be in relationship with him, which is why we should seek him. But it still leaves us with the question, how did these nations form? Where did the ethnic groups originate? And this brings us back to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis 10, after God judged the world in its growing wickedness, the growing wickedness of mankind through a flood, where only Noah and his family are saved on the ark. We come to Genesis chapter 10, to a chapter that's called the Table of Nations, because it traces the peoples of the ancient world from the sons of Noah. And while we're not going to study the formation of all these nations this morning, uh, let's look at Genesis 10 at the beginning and closing of this chapter. So Genesis 10, let's look at verses, uh, verse 1. Now, this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. And then the final verse, verse 32 of Genesis 10. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, in their nations. And from these nations were divided on the earth after the flood. So where do the nations come from? The sons of Noah, the family of Noah. And as one example, we read about the nations that come from Noah's son Japheth, for example. Let's look at verses 2 to 5 as, as an example. The sons of Japheth were uh, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Mishbek, and Tiraz. Uh, the sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togerma. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kedem, and Dodanim. Verse 5, For these the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. So you see where these Gentile peoples come from. They come from Noah's son Japheth. These are the ethnic groups which come from him. And these are the nations then, as we read, who were divided on the earth after the flood. But how do these nations separate and spread through the world? Well, this brings us to the next chapter, Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel. Because there in sin, mankind was not following God's purpose for his image bearers, but they united in their rebellion against God with one language and one speech, dwelling in the same place, a plain in the land of Shinar. They were determined to show that in their united power, opposition to God by building for themselves a city and a tower whose top was in the heavens, and they refused to follow God and his will for them to scatter abroad over the face of the whole earth. 
And so we read in verses 5 to 10 of God's judgment against sinful humanity. Let's look again, Genesis 11, verses 5 to 10. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. So God confuses their languages to keep them from uniting together against him and scatters them abroad. And this is why ethnic groups are usually identified today by their homeland and their territory where they live, where their people live together. We even think of nations today more in terms of the boundaries of where people live on a map than the actual people who make up the nations themselves. So we have so far seen the beginning of brokenness in our relationships, followed by the division of ethnic groups as history unfolds. Finally, I want us to look this morning at the reality of injustice and oppression. Because with the nations divided, we can now consider the practice of injustice and oppression in this sinful world. Uh, so let's turn together to the book of Ecclesiastes. Because it's in this book that we have painted an accurate and realistic picture of what it means to live in this cursed and corrupt world. Of course, for a fuller treatment of this book, I'd encourage you to find online a sermon series that I preached through a couple of years ago. Uh, but here in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, at the end of his life, and with all of his God-given wisdom, writes about this life as one that's lived under the sun. So when we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, in verses 16 and 17, Solomon speaks about the injustice that he has seen in this world. Let's read about it together. Moreover, I saw under the sun, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there, and in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. So instead of justice, there is wickedness. Instead of righteousness, there is iniquity and sin. And it is our just God who gives us hope, knowing that one day justice is coming, when he will judge the righteous and the wicked with equity and with no partiality. But until that coming day of judgment, injustice will continue in this world. And then as we come to chapter 4, Solomon turns to speak of oppression. So let's read the first three verses there of chapter 4. Solomon writes, Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors there is power, but they have no comforter. Therefore I praise the dead who are already dead, more than the living who are still alive. Yet 
better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. What a dark and bleak picture. The oppressed are crying, and there's no one to help them, no one to comfort them. It would be better to be dead, he says, than experience such evil in this world. And while most of us don't think so negatively about our world, the truth is that oppression is real, and it will hurt and harm people until the end of the age through the abuse of power. We then must not minimize or deny its reality. So both injustice and oppression regularly take place in this world. Again, in the midst of this, there's always hope in the midst of this injustice and oppression, but God never promised that it will come to an end in the age in which we live. So this brings us then to defining these ideas of injustice and oppression. You can tell how important it is to define the words we're using in thinking through these issues. So after what we've considered this morning, we're ready to define some more words and concepts here. Injustice is the opposite of justice. So if, in, uh, so if justice is our fair and impartial treatment according to God's law, injustice is its opposite, right? Injustice is our unfair and partial treatment of others in violation of God's law. So turn, let's turn to one more passage of Scripture, James. James, since he writes about this injustice at the beginning of chapter 2. Because here James writes about the sin of partiality in the local church. And we read about it in verses 1 to 4. So the sin of partiality, of being partial or showing favoritism. Listen to James. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So in these verses, partiality is shown to the rich over the poor. They are not treated equally, but the rich are favored over the poor. But the sin of partiality not only happens between the rich and the poor, but it also happens in the treatment of different ethnic groups. You may remember when the Apostle Paul rebuked the Apostle Peter in Galatians by favoring the Jews over the Gentiles in the church's fellowship meals. And so Paul writes in Galatians 2, verses 11 to 13, Now when favoring the Jews over the Gentiles in the church's fellowship meals, I'm sorry, let me say that again. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. This, then, is the sin of ethnic partiality. So we have the sin of partiality that takes place in our relationships personally, 
But we see that the sin of partiality can also have social consequences, where those in the positions of power within society can produce policies which unfairly favor the treatment of some over others. When you then combine the sin of partiality with the abuse of power in society, this produces oppression. So oppression can be defined as favoring one group over another in society through the abuse of power. Right? Oppression is favoring one group over another in society through the abuse of power. And this oppression takes place throughout the nations in the Old Testament in their unfair and partial treatment of groups within their societies. Therefore, we can also speak of ethnic oppression, which is a specific kind of oppression. Ethnic oppression is favoring one ethnic group over another in a society through the abuse of power. And we will return to this kind of oppression as we continue our study next week and consider God's chosen nation of Israel through the Old Testament. So let's enjoy a time of conversation before we return to this study the next time we meet.